Welcome to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I am your host, Donnie Mae. This is the monthly show focused on building conversations around the team-based model approach to athletic performance, strength and conditioning, sports medicine, sports science, mental health and wellness, and sports nutrition. Hello and welcome back to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Mae, and we are well into the summer here in Austin, getting close to fall. Football is right around the corner. You can kind of feel the buzz. Coach Joe, how are you doing this summer? How's things in your world? We're doing great. Uh, a little bit of side news. The wife and I just signed for a new house, so we're, we're super excited about that. Uh, Austin's a hot city to live in, but I'm more excited about today's guest, uh, Coach Peter Twist, from uh, awesome. straight from Vancouver, up north. Uh, He's been a guy that I've followed since I was just a kid as an athlete. And then through the years, as I got into strength and conditioning, followed him as a coach. So um, I'm extremely excited to have him on today. So I'm I'm doing really good today. Good stuff. Excited to have Coach Peter Twist on. Coach Twist, you doing good? How's things in Canada? I'm doing fantastic. Things are great up here. Every, every day is a great day. Difficult days are excellent days, you know, to receive this day right. and get to show up our, our best we can into it. Uh, love every day. So um, we're, we're just we're just happy to be along your border where we can tuck in and be right. your younger brother and keep safe here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, before you introduce him, Joe, what is the hottest it gets where you live compared to Texas? What are you what's your hottest temperature in Canada? Oh, you're and you're in Fahrenheit there, right? What's what's your hottest that it gets? Joe, we've been 107 this week. Yeah, well, the weekend it got up by one hundred seven. Yeah, we're uh, we're we're typically like we'd be, we'd be pushing sometimes maybe ninety in there, um, but you know I, I've got I've got true Canadian skin, so I'm I'm not sure how I can how long I can last above hundred. <laughs> but I go into an air conditioned weight room and sweat a lot. We can get that done. Stuff. We're good. Appreciate it, Coach. Go ahead, Joe. You can do a little. A little background on Coach Twist for the for the listeners. All right, so I got I got to take a deep breath here. This is a good long bio, so everyone sit tight for a second. Uh, Coach Twist has been at it for a few years now. So, Coach Peter Twist is from the small city of Peterborough, Ontario. Where at a younger age, he was drawn to the potential of becoming a physical physical education teacher. Uh, he instead progressed to achieve his master's in coaching science at the famed University of British Columbia. Since that time, he graduated on to work as a sports scientist, conducting brain brain body research. Coached for 11 years in the National Hockey League with the Vancouver Canucks, was selected by Under Armour and IMG as their global education partner, as well and as well by the China Olympic Committee to help modernize how their summer and winter national teams train and rehab in preparation for the Olympic Games. Overall, Coach Twist has worked with over 700 professional athletes, published over 400 papers, authored 10 books, 19 DVDs on athletic development. Two major honors include the NSCA's 1998 Presence Award and the CanFit Pro 2003 Specialty Presenter of the Year Award. Oof. Coach Twist, you ready to go? How you doing? <laughs> Born ready. Born ready is the uh, swagger answer, but as we know, no one's really born ready. We train to get ready, and we grow and prepare, so I, I am ready and uh, always ready to get a little bit better, so... Grateful to join both of you coaches here today. Yeah. So 
down here at Texas, I'm I'm like the resident hockey nerd being from Detroit, Michigan. And so I'm, I'm going to jump right into it. Um, I got to ask, you worked in both the National Hockey League and the private sector for a long time. You know, which which setting do you prefer more? You know, did you enjoy more, prefer more? And have you been able to keep your passion in the private sector? Or is there ever like a desire to, you know, get back with the boys again? Oh, well, well, I can say right off the bat when uh, when I had the opportunity to go to University of British Columbia, did my master's in coaching science, how you apply the sciences to the art of coaching. And I did uh, just because I knew I was in an environment where you can learn a lot and benefit and there's all kinds of uh, passionate people around you. I wasn't in a hurry to leave. I was playing varsity ice hockey. So definitely wanted to use up all my eligibility as an athlete because, you know, we're so passionate about playing our sport. But I took, you know, you can do a thesis or a major paper. And I chose to do both because this is my opportunity to grow. I got my whole life ahead of me. What's the hurry? And I did a thesis in the physiology and bioenergetics of ice hockey. But my, um, or sorry, that was my major paper. My thesis was in the area of team-based attitudes. And, you know, how do we predict when we're choosing someone for a team, is that person, do they have the propensity to be more socially connected? Do they have the ability to be task cohesive? So we execute on one game plan together. So that was all team oriented. And so for sure, I love being part of a team. I love being uh, the best follower within a team because uh, that's actually how I choose my future leaders is who follows the most because they're cognizant of what the leader needs to be done. Um, being a teammate and being a leader on a team. So I always have appetite to join a team in any setting. Um, as Tom Reddy, who I, th I think headed up uh, Canada's uh, national hockey program, he coached major junior hockey for many years then stepped into the NHL. He told me once in answering your question, the NHL he loves for many reasons. And of course, we're taught as athletes and coaches and people and professionals to aspire, climb, climb that ladder, get higher, get, you know, reach the top. So there's part of the process and being at the top he enjoyed. But if you asked him this question, from a pure coaching and player development, he, he far preferred major junior and that age group and bringing those young men along. But as life aspirations take you, sometimes you end up somewhere where kind of how society defines success. So I'm going to answer the question more for the viewers and encourage them just to uh, define success on their terms. That could be working with 10 year olds in their town. That could be in the NFL. Doesn't matter, right? It's what, uh, what you value where you get your fulfillment and what success to you. Yeah. And it always seems like too, there's some kind of, um, there's some kind of benefit to just maybe some of the lower levels, like say collegiate, for instance, you know, a lot of these teams, they, it's part of their schedule to come in here, whether, whether they like it or not. Whereas if you get someone like a, uh, I'll just use a Detroit example, Nick Lidstrom in his later years, I mean, the, the decision was probably up to him. Sure, and I mean, sure. by then he knew his body. So then, you know, maybe some days you get to work with him, some days you don't. And so I think from what I've heard around, you know, a lot of guys prefer the college setting because no matter what, you get to work with the boys and and you get to bring them in. So I think I think that's always 
probably played a role too, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, I understand. I had a quick question. Uh, you, you sparked my interest. Um, you were talking about your your thesis. And so I work with uh, a team sport as well, women's volleyball. You know, and I've worked with different team sports over the years. From your research and just from your experience, like how how do you kind of tell if somebody has a great aptitude to be good on a team and not be good? Like, what do you guys? How did you kind of kind of rate or score that, or how did you kind of evaluate that? I'd be interested to hear that. Yeah, and, and because uh, I had the exact same question as you, and then I looked at co uh, team cohesion research, and at the time they were really measuring things after the after the fact. You know, did your volleyball team, if they won a championship, if you won five matches in a row, if you're having a losing season, then the the research is measuring your players, and they're they're looking at sort of how how are how is that team affected from the experiences you've recently had where i was more uh i love how your mind was thinking there right away could could we predict could we use that as a selection tool so my thesis was actually the development of a valid and reliable psychometric uh analysis tool uh which ends up being a questionnaire you know if a layman looks at it it looks like a simple questionnaire but to actually validate and substantiate, especially a, a, a social psychological construct. It's not like a weight we can pick up in the weight room. We know how many pounds that is and we know its strength. Um, but to actually validate that we're measuring something by these questions, that's a tangible thing, uh, which, which I refer to as social and task cohesion. So I did get that validated and that, that would be an effective tool from a predictive nature one thing out of, you know, all of the many things a coach uses with their subjective eye and data and science to quantify. Um, but my, my answer is that that was the process of that. There, there is no way. So we, we aspire to develop a valid uh, measuring instrument to do that. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, to your point, it's that it's you really the only way you can kind of see it is as the season kind of goes along. Um, and you see these different, you know, whether it's clicks or divisions on the team and it kind of ends up, you know, negatively impacting you. I know that it just feels like the teams that we've had in the past, there seems to be more of a chemistry, a cohesion. It's not perfect for sure, but there's there's just something there that helps elevate their play onto the the the, the court. So it's always always interesting to talk about that. So good stuff. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll, a quick quick inject to that, like more of a practi applied practical nature. What I would do as a coach er, very early or when there's still athletes to select from, maybe you've got your, you know, you've got your cuts down, but you've still got a few folks there, or you're just trying to, you know, organize and rate your roster on many different things that, that affect the long-term uh, health of the team, not just that player's performance on the court today. But I would set up, I'm a real observation of behavior. So, you know, say we were even right at the start, a team orientation meeting, and there's a, a team meeting and players are coming in. And I purposely, I don't, uh, we might have chairs in the weight room. I purposely don't have the chairs set up. They're off to the side. I watch who shows up early, who shows up without asking and grabs chairs and starts setting them up. Who asks me if anything can be done? 
you know, who's floating in the back, the last to lift the finger. And uh, so there's that's one example out of hundreds. But from a behavioral standpoint, we can start to watch um, without a lot of lot of information feedback later on where you say you might see cliques and uh, different attitudes and so on. I, I look at specific behaviors very early and try and set the stage for that in everything we do. And that's a that's a third eye I'm watching for things that. That's solid. That's so good. Good, good recommendations for sure. Yeah, great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, so what I was going to get into next is, you know, how was your experience with the Vancouver Canucks? And we'll kind of stay a little on topic too with it. You know, what kind of behavior patterns did you see with them when you worked with them? And then, you know, we can even get into some of your biggest lessons working in NHL. But, you know, were you working on that stuff as, as far back as when you started with the Canucks? Oh, yeah, you bet, coach. And I had a great, my timing was a great opportunity because strength and conditioning was new for the NHL. I think, I think you know, at the, it's changed so fast at the time. Of course, in uh, USA College, strength and conditioning was very common. In the NFL, that was well set up. A lot, a lot of the other major league teams didn't have that. And, you know, the thing is with pro sport, you know, they kind of modernized, but then buying into change is slow even amongst the people that hire you. So, <laughs> you know, they might position something because they know it's important, but they don't really want it fully. They're not ready to have it fully implemented, you know, because it's just so much change. Uh, and, and every sport goes through that. Of course, I got the opportunity to go to China as well, where you've got, you know, younger mo- modern coaches trying to push to modernize. And you've got guys that are, you know, uh, still a young man, but say 65 and, they, they were coached by a 65-year-old when they were 20, and they still sort of have those, those ways with them. Um, I got to go into the NHL when this was new. Uh, there wasn't really a process, and there wasn't buy-in. And so I'll tell you right off the bat, like a handful of the coaches saw this, or a handful of the players saw this as a great asset and advantage. And it, it was clearly a way to get an advantage because not all players were coming into camp at their very best. And uh, some players did it because they're good teammates and they had some trust it would help them. Others are good teammates and coachable. And they, I don't think they thought it would help them that much, but that's what the team's doing. And, and other guys like this, this was just something we could test them on and use it for punishment and put them in the doghouse and take them out of the lineup, right? So... It was more like the college setting, except that the players weren't bought in where like I, it wasn't strength and conditioning was not mature enough uh, in professional hockey, nor were the teams and the management and coaching staff and players in how they treat it. Uh, so I was kind of the bouncer guy. Like I would, I was the hunter. I go over, we started out, um, I think we, we were the first team in the NHL to start training after games. And kind of uh, connecting your other question, one of the things I learned is I, I stopped believing in peak performance and focusing on peak performance because these guys are playing three three games a week. You know, it's not once once for the Olympics and once for the World Championship. So you're never going to be at your peak. What's the peak? What's the highest we can be at in a sustainable level? Peak sustainable performance. Peak sustainable high performance. So. The time to work out was after the game when the guys, they better be warmed up after a game. 
And, you know, we'd get our workout done and we'd have another 48 hours uh, to, to restore and work on minor things before the next game. That's a huge cultural shift. If you spent your career going out partying after games or going home to your family at midnight and Coach Twist is now getting us to work out. And you know what? I was on my own. And I, I would go over and I would hunt guys down in the dressing room and I would drag guys over pretty much if I had to till the whole team was doing it. And I can say when, you know, when you're willing to do things, uh, fast forward 10 years later, we, uh, we traded for a guy. The player came in and uh, we were working out after the game. He was a big enforcer guy. And he was like, I don't, I'm from Montreal. I don't, we don't, we don't work out there. And I'm so-and-so, I'm an enforcer. I do whatever I want. And then, so I, my accents are so terrible, but I tried to imitate his accent for fun. I went, I went nose to nose, you know, that statement, I had to step up nose to nose, except my nose is at his chest. He's so big and he had about 50 pounds of muscle on me. And he threw guys around on the ice for a living. So, but I stepped in. And I just said, well, I don't know what it's like there, but, you know, this is Vancouver Canucks. And we do things as a team and we're doing this to get better. And we all feed off of that. Um, but as far as him getting him compliance and then he didn't know how to do the workout, there was other team leaders, the captain, the assistant, the social leaders. They stepped in, made sure he worked out Then he goes to work out. And he's not on the same training level as the rest of us. So I went to step in and coach him and cue up his technique. And a couple of the veteran players beat me to it. And so when I started out, it was from nothing and no one was bought in. And by the time I left that program, it, it had momentum. It had a life and the, the top players were perpetuating it, valuing it and maintaining the quality. But it, it takes a bit of grit. And a uh, little bit of work to get it there. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that was, was, you know, you hear a lot of it from, you know, a lot of other hockey guys like Mike Boyles and everyone in the world. And, you know, what are some things you had to do to build that credibility, either with management or the team to, to get everyone bought in? So, number, you know, some, some of the things that work, I always say it's like I'm Captain Obvious. And <laughs> this is a Captain Obvious quote, but... You know, I make sure they know I, I'm I'll use I'll use two two types of words. Like I'll speak. If I'm gonna speak in that setting, it's either one, just in friendship, and might be three things actually. It'll be like in friendship and social connection, and I'm just enjoying speaking with them. Um, number two, it might be for me to learn. I believe uh, there's eight billion people in the world. I firmly believe I can learn something from everyone. And all 8 billion people know how to do something I don't. So you're in a world-class environment. I, I'm observing, I'm asking questions. That could be the second. The third is, if I'm speaking, then if it's not those first two things, anything I'm saying, I believe will help them improve. I got their back. I'm here to help each individual improve and the team improve. You know, And if they have a different opinion, we can discuss it. Um, but they can trust. I'm... If, you know, if, I, if I'm not trying to, if I'm not talking about things uh, that are helping them improve, then I, I'm probably listening to someone else and just make sure they have that, that trust and assurance that my words are intended uh, to elevate them. Right. Yeah. I, I got to ask too, well, who, who was probably the best guy on the team 
back then in the weight room? Who, who was like really your, your athlete you leaned on for a little bit of help? Well, na- naturally, uh, right away on any team I'm on, and, and to answer your question back then, right at the start, uh, like I, I naturally, I go to the leaders. I go to the captain, the assistant captains are just designated in hockey. Uh, I also go to who's ever, if there's someone else who's known as the most skilled or has the highest salary. And then I go to who's ever the social leader, right? Because the social leader also, it, that's a strong, that could be the strongest leader in the room. And, you know, they can, you know, they do the talk around the water cooler using the office analogy. They're having beers somewhere and uh, they're either going to like make your program or break your program. So I know the key, the key roles on the team I have to have on board. Um, so I purposely go to them and if they're not on board, I find a way to get them on board. Um, so to answer the question, uh, num- number one, starting out, it was uh, Trevor Linden, who was captain of the team. And he was the one day one. Yes, yes, Coach Twist, you know, love, love it. Help, helping pick up equipment, being in there early, staying late, working hard, uh, being prepared with ideas on how he can improve, what he wants to work on. And I found over the years, it was the leaders who were the most coachable. You know, Mark Messier, uh, Marcus Naslin, more recently for that program, Daniel Hendricks Sedin. You know who I had the honor to help develop from my, uh, you know, young boys into men, into warriors, into leaders. Um, you got to have those guys on board. I did have one player wasn't wasn't the leader from a captain standpoint, but he made uh, he made tons of money, and uh, I tried every motivation method uh, that I had to get him on board and and in enforcing and grabbing him and. Of course, I can enforce it and I can get him there on the day, but he's not bought in, mm-hmm. right? Seeing someone in there working out, who cares if they're not giving their best and they're not speaking positively about it outside of that hour, let's say, doesn't matter. They're a detractor of the program. So we're trying to win a championship and they're not doing everything in their favor. Well, this, this individual was just said to me, he said, look, you know, look, Coach Twist, I'm I get this, and there's a lot of players going to benefit. They go, but I don't really need like endurance and more power and things like that. They go, I I don't even really work hard out there. I'm never going to carry the puck from one end to the other. Um, I get paid just for being in the right position around the net. You give me the puck, I'm the best equipment in the net. I get paid millions for that. And... So then from that pocket, you kind of work backwards, like reverse engineer from your player's attitude. Um, rather than judge that, it's like, how, how do I work with that? And so I convinced him that, yeah, you know what? You, you're making $5 million a year just the way you are. Like, you're good to go. You're popping in our highest goal total. But the team's not going to be successful. Like not all guys can get away with that, let alone you don't know how good you could be with that. That philosophy wasn't enticing him. He was happy how good he was now. Didn't have the drive and the fire to get better. But what about your, what about your wingers? What about your line mates? What if they were better? They need to be better. Could they dig out the puck and feed you more passes? Could you score more goals? What if you're doing what you're doing and our team wins a championship? Is it more fun? Does that you know result for you? So this guy was motivated for selfish reasons. 
and became a key part of the team workouts, fully committed because he was being there to make sure everyone else was working out hard so that he would benefit individually. That was a unique one, um, but there was lots of examples like that, uh, working with each player and knowing what makes them tick. You got to have about 30 different motivation strategies and find the right language that speaks to that player. Yeah. I got, Coach, I got one last thing before I turn it over to uh, to Donnie. So you wrote you wrote the book Complete Conditioning for Ice Hockey. And I mean, back then, there really wasn't much. And, that, and that's kind of how I was introduced to, to you and strength and conditioning for hockey. I was I was a young kid. I wasn't all that good. And I started going to camps and doing dry land out of, out of your book. But when it came to that stuff, I think there was a Wayne Gretzky video out there where it had like different, you know, uh, resistance training techniques and there was like a few cool videos of Fedorov racing beret and everything and then uh who, who you worked with um and uh and then there was your book I mean you know was it was it you that pushed to write that book or did someone kind of come out and say hey like you're one of the few guys working in hockey right now we, we need a book and can you write it uh well at, at the time um I had translated my uh, master's major paper into a book with a professor, Dr. Ted Rhodes, physiology, ice hockey. So, you know, he helped get me into writing. And then though, naturally as our career goes, we're blessed to get invited to do lots of things. That, that book was my initiative. I proposed it, the publisher accepted it. It was needed in hockey. There were books, you would be uh, probably shocked at this, knowing I, and the game of ice hockey is an anaerobic speed, power, quickness, multi-directional sport, uh, one of the many of those. But for ice hockey, there were some books before. They were pretty thin, and they were mostly on aerobic training, continuous aerobic training. Okay. And then back in that day, um, you know, unless you, you might be doing uh, power lifting or Olympic lifting, but otherwise all the strength training was muscle isolation, more like a, like a health club type setting. So it had lots of room to grow. Uh, important for your uh, listeners, I took the initiative to propose that. And then, you know, are you, are you willing to do whatever it takes? And I had a young family. I'm in the NHL. I'm working seven days a week on that schedule. Uh, a couple dogs, a couple babes, babies in the house, renovating the house. And I spent, I, I remember I spent three months uh, every second night I wrote. And I, you know, my wife would go to sleep, my kids would get into bed, the babies get into bed and be like, you know, nine or 10 at night and I'd get to work and I'd write till six in the morning, then I'd go to the rink and show up for work. And always got to have a good attitude. You got to have energy, you got to have your head on a swivel, your eyes open. And it's just like, you know, do you have a little bit of grit, a little bit of endurance? And are you, you know, can you see it as developing resiliency and things like that? But um, I wasn't a fast writer at the time because it was my first fully published book. And, you, you know, so I was willing to put in the hours and it's doing things kind of the antithesis of the social media era. I'm doing things every second night that nobody knows that I'm doing. That's trying to take me to where I want to go, which is impacting hockey and coaches and players. A lot, a lot of our most important work is very quiet. And behind the scenes coach again just looking at the total body of work you've done i mean it's very 
it's very clear and evident that you have a true passion and a love for what you do. Um, so kind of a bridge off that question, looking at some of the stuff you've done. So you kind of touched on it real briefly right there. We're in this like, the only way I know how to call it is like this social media kind of era that we're in with, you know, fitness, strength, conditioning, coaching. What has changed kind of how you do your job now, coach? What's different with this new kind of, do you do, do you a little bit more strategic? Um, do you do more online coaching in person? Like give us a little peek into maybe how you've evolved over the years up to where you are now. Just a little bit of that, please. Uh, absolutely. And I think of all of this, that's, that's an important, um, you know, we stick to, we stick to things that work. There's things that I do that were in the industry before me and that, you know, that are tried and true and staples and so on. Well, we're, we're going to continue to do those. But uh, evolving is so important. And what a great opportunity uh, individually. We don't always see things as uh, top professionals that are changing what we think is for the better. Um, but then that is the reality. So what's that mean? So in my world, you know, I love coaching hands-on uh, with a group of athletes. I also love teaching and mentoring coaches to do the same. And so during... Uh, in the COVID period, suffice to say, um, uh, just just mention it for the story. In Canada, I'm Canada's scientific representative on the uh, Foundation of Global Community Health. It's one person from 193 countries that meets to collaborate on in, uh, in best practices for health and mental well-being and physical fitness as well. Um, so Canada, during as we went into the pandemic, chose to elect to use that by closing all my businesses, as they did for a while in the States. And, you know, really slandered coaching, training and specialized health practitioners as the high risk problem. Better to take a thousand people and funnel them into Walmart together than have 10 people training in a gym to build their mindset and immune system and so on. So not number one, I, th I think. In, in our related field, besides working with athletes for sport, we all know the lifelong skills and mindset and hopefully lifelong buy-in to sport and being active and in motion for the rest of their life, getting their future families active and so on. So, 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 so many benefits. Uh, coaches and trainers are part of the solution and they're exactly what society needs more of. But I could see, wow, you know, wow, in, in Canada, we had, we make tobacco uh, essential. That was tobacco sales were essential. Um, and I, I personally, I don't know if you guys do or not, but if you want to get together for a pizza and a few beers, I'm all for that. Um, and even though I enjoy having a few beers, I don't think alcohol is essential during a health pandemic. Right. Training, getting in nature, being fit, eating healthy and so on, right? So I saw... We're not shutting down sick, the causes of sickness. We're funneling people to them while we're closing sort of the specialized health and fitness and coaching practitioners. So that just elevated my passion to be part of the solution and find one the government can't screw up, which was, so I shifted along with the technology as you uh, guided me with the words evolve. Um, I took all our past education and shut it down which was taught around the world by live master teachers. I'm one by one rewriting 
to modernize as is 2022 each book and course which used to be taught by live teachers and now they're all I have a, a digital online campus, Twist University, twistuniversity.com. Oh, and wow. where coaches from anywhere in the world can come on and study at their own pace, trying to make it inspirational and personalizing it. It's like, to me, it's amazing art because the human body in motion is amazing. So we're making it a premium experience. Um, but if anything happens in the world, um, coaches can still access. They can get with their peers and get inspired and, and learn. So that's one way. Um, the other in a, in a, every coach I talk to who's like in, in the weight room on the field with their athletes, um, you know, they're doing what they're doing. We're, you know, we're, we're all have science knowledge. We have a great art of coaching and methodology, but I think we see social media and it's, it's social media is enter, mostly entertainment. There's some good folks, and I try to give little bites of uh, of knowledge to help people along. And but to be really successful on social media, you're an entertainer, not an educator. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. It's just different, right? And so all pro and college coaches that I've chatted with, some of their time is answering their athletes' questions about what they see on social media and making sure they, you know, there's the, the, the risk that they just keep biting into the latest fad or trend or circus trick that they see on social media. And so I think coaches, the coaches I speak to, we don't like that that's a reality, but we know it's important and we need to be aware of what's on there because our athletes are on there and be, be able to speak to those things. Maybe there's some things that help them, most of them, we probably don't want them to disrupt and interfere with our long-term athlete development and annual seasonal plan, but we need to be prepared to have the conversations because our athletes, our young athletes are heavily influenced. No, that's the, coach, that's the first time I've ever heard that coined and it actually like made it click for me. Like social media really, it truly is. It's just more entertainment. When you look at a lot of the trends right now, and I'm on social media a little bit, not a ton, I try to stay current, like the, what they call like the TikToks and the reels. It's the, the attention span is like maybe what, five to six seconds max. And then, I mean, I've got four, four uh, young daughters and I mean, they are scrolling. So you really can't get much depth of content or education with that kind of thing. So to your point, dude, I've, I'm, I'm going to kind of borrow that. That's, that's spot on. It's more, it's more entertainment. It's not so much education. So that's good stuff. Yeah. And I, I just, uh, coach, I just recommend, you know, if someone's, someone's on social media, it's really their choice. Is it just another version of catching their breath and, and chilling out and they're just scrolling, not really paying too much attention to anything. So, you know, a few minutes of that is fine. If that's 10 hours of their day, it might be a little bit too much. Um, but if that's the way they want to go, that's fine. But if there's someone that actually wants to learn and go and improve um, and actually be influenced in some way that affects their success and growth, uh, I, I recommend you like, just follow five people. You'll actually like watch their three minute video and, you know, look into it deeper, like really learn their stuff. 
get the value you need. And after you've gotten enough, then maybe you follow five different people, but actually pause and get, get into what they're talking to you about and get into it fully and then layer that inside of you. Right. So, um, in the, in the day of a, a tweet and so on like that, there's not a lot of folks doing that, but I, I think you can find things. Mm-hmm. Um, as one of my daughters said, I have two daughters and of course, um, men and boys are too, and mental well-being amongst young boys is challenged, but just w- women and young girls get a lot of messaging about from media and traditional media and social media now, like they're not enough and how they're supposed to show up. And if they show up that way, uh, then they get judged negatively for it. Like they're just in a no win, hard to grow their self-esteem by, by through marketing. And so my, my one daughter was pretty savvy at a young age. She just said, you know, if I'm on social media and I'm following someone and it makes me feel poorly about myself, I just unfollow them. I kind of change the channel. And so, you know, to really find who serves you and whether you need inspiration right now, I need grit and resiliency right now. I, I just need to waste some time and, you know, veg out for a bit because I've been using my brain all day or I, I'm a young coach. I want to learn. And uh, so any of those factors, find the theme that you're looking for and just fo- follow those people and get into it. I highly recommend that young coaches uh, follow coaches on social media, not who has a million followers because of whatever they're posting on Instagram, but who were they before Instagram? And more often than not, they weren't doing anything. So, you know, you mentioned um, uh, uh, Michael Boyle, I think, earlier. And there's Michael Boyle. Well, he's, he's been on stage lecturing at conferences because at a conference, you actually have to succeed before you have a platform. Instagram, you just have to have the capability to sign up for a free account. If you have the capability to sign up for a free account, then you are now an Instagram influencer, coach, health leader, whatever you want to call yourself. And so find someone with real world success that's working with real world athletes, then, you know, listen to them and engage with the people who engage, learn from each other. That's good stuff. Um, speaking of content, kind of a little, little shift on topic here. Yeah. Um, you, do, you seem to be doing like a ton of work on fascial line training. And this, I actually love this topic and would just love to hear uh, maybe walk us through some of your methodologies and how you how you feel. How does the fascial line training improve or impact performance, uh, positive or negatively? However, whichever direction you want to go with it, hundred uh, percent. And I'll clarify, people, uh, people listening, that um, you know, I, I I still got a part of me at heart that's a I, I call it in a in a positive way, but I say a dumb job, you know. I did, I'm, I'm the athlete come in and that puts me in a place where I like complex made simple and uh, I'm the captain obvious. I look for obvious things that are like, wow, they stopped me in my tracks to get curious about. We know the human body uh, as our human vehicle and when we ask it to be at its best for expressing athletic action, it's the most complex machine in the world. It's the only machine in the world not fully understood by anyone. So it begs us to get, there's the opportunity to stay curious. What else is trainable? What characteristics of the function of the body could we consider? And, uh, you know, if someone's on their phone or their desktop or their laptop, 
the human body and brain is about a billion times more complex than the machines you're using and the programming you're using for this. So it's also so cool to study. And the Captain Obvious part, you know, when I learned, when I did uh, my first cadaver studies in anatomy in my undergrad, what the prof anatomy professor did was try to remove the fascia so it could get out of the way so we could see the muscle more clearly and study the muscle. And fascia was like some inert substance that was just thrown to the side. And so it wasn't until later. And when I learned that our fascial system, number one, connects our muscles in long lines across multiple joints. So now we have more long uh, patterns of stability and tensegrity and force absorption and production. But most stood out was that it communicates information with our millions of sensors in our hands, our feet, and then all through our body and our joints that are like sensors to the software of our body, our brain, telling us how is our body moving? Am I being body checked? Am I being tackled? Am I skiing down moguls? What's happening in my environment? And it floods millions of pieces of information every microsecond through our brain to make computations. What, what are the actions, the motor responses of the rest of the body? That communication happens at 700 miles per hour. So I say, like, I'm no rocket scientist. So when I see 700 miles per hour, I'm like, that's obviously important. Number one, if it wasn't communicating between the brain, the fascia, the muscle, if they're not communicating, sharing information, if, 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 they're, if they are doing that, it must be important. If it wasn't important to our function and ability, it wouldn't even be there. But let's say it's, it happens at 700 miles per hour. And if it wasn't that important, it might happen, but at 10 miles per hour. And get around to it. We'll swap that information around. We're still clicking around, being our best physical performance. It happens at 700 miles per hour. So then I look, okay, why, what is it communicating? Why is it doing that? And what is that affecting? And if we can understand those characteristics of how the body parts communicate when they're exercising and playing sports, and then find ways to train uh, the characteristics of that, you know, we're on to something. This is obviously, it's, I'll use that word. It is obviously uh, important when you see something in the body that happens at the speed of 700 miles per hour, it's urgent. You know, it's, it's essential. So we're working back for, from there. I placed a bigger emphasis on proprioception and how are we kind of reverse engineering. How are we stimulating the brain and that communication system and the receptors? And then how can we positively affect muscles and fascia from that? Is there one part or one area of the body that you're like specifically like really skilled with, like shoulder, hip, um, knee, ankle, anything? I would say I, I'm particularly skilled at linking the body into one. So let's make the muscle groups one. How do we unify them? Okay. How do we, you know, ba balance strength and, and movement? But how do we make from toes, let's say our toes and our feet through to our fingers? How are we connecting that like one long, big, strong body armor? How, how are we connecting that as one to link 
the body and sequentially fire and summate power joint by joint to express it? How can we do that for more skillfulness? So I think I, I would summarize what I like to think is my skill is taking the complex uh, body and making it simple into methodology and training systems that are replicable, but really unifying it into one. You know, the, the muscle group we're working today is the, it's the human system. And we're going to link it from feet through our hands. And the more we can do that, I think the more skillful we can be. A lot of that, um, to answer your question, also focuses on skill execution. It focuses on uh, change of direction and three, 3D movement, 3D strength, 3D power. Um, so, of course, we, you know, we do things vertically and linear, uh, linear with track sprinting and um uh, Olympic lifting and things like that. And we're doing our squats and our cleans and our stats and so on. But we, we, we move, we coil, we move by rotation and then we link our feet to our hands. I try and combine those two things and kind of build out from there. No, that's good. I think just the more I do this as a coach and the more you work with the body, I mean, you're spot on, like everything is so connected you know, from your hand all the way down to your head, your shoulders, down into your feet. And like one, understanding how all those parts kind of interrelate and work together uh, can make you not only a better mover, but just overall just a better uh, human performance, but also just keep you healthier too, you know? Yeah. Longevity, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's a big piece of it. So yeah, it's, it's good stuff. Very, uh, very just deep subject, but intriguing uh, subject, just changing the way uh, we, we view the human body is always critical. So good stuff. It is, it is. And, um, you know, if someone was brand new to fascial lines, um, just to know that, you know, our fascial tissue runs in long lines from feet to head and cross body and in diagonal patterns, spiral patterns, but in longer lines, they cross multiple joints. So um, it affects how muscles, no, no muscle works alone. Nothing in the body happens in isolation. And, you know, we can start to get more muscles working cooperatively together for stability, uh, for concentric, eccentric contractions and summating, sequentially power, sequentially power, so on. But to visualize it, the training methodology I work backwards from, if, I think if you took Tai Chi with yoga in motion, little bit of bodybuilding techniques, you know, time under tension, slow eccentric contractions with multi-directional sport performance through that into a crop bot, you know, you'd come out with exercising for fascial lines training from using it. Not fascial lines is usually looked at in our industry from a repair and restoration um, and, you know, massage and release and realignment, which is very important. I'm just looking at it exclusively from a performance standpoint. Okay. And we really end up with the ability, especially for our athletes who are in there, like working at anomaly uh, levels of power and speed and combativeness and so on and quickness. But also for all of us, every year that we age, we're getting softer or stronger. And what are I'm really intrigued for folks as they age. What are ways that we can overload the body to build the brain, build more brain cells, build and build, sustain and build our musculature um, in ways that translate to movement, not just looking good like a statue. 
and uh, that translate to movement w- without necessarily uh, always lifting the heaviest load. We know load works. Let's go to it. You know, but what's what's appropriate for that human, that person, that adult over the long term? Are there there's there's many ways we can overload to stimulate muscle adaptations and growth and so on. And I'll just say, you know, my age, I know too many coaches of my peers that have hip replacements and knee replacements and chronic pain. And, you know, hey, you know, we we play the game of life, too. And someone might get cancer. Someone might get in a motor vehicle accident. There's things that happen. We are as coaches. We have the knowledge how to restore and grow. Um, but when I train someone, I'm training them on the day. I'm training them for their next game in the season, uh, but I'll only train them in a way that I believe it's helping them for the long game. How is this going to affect them 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, uh, more sustainable results and keep them robust and healthy uh, long after they've spent time with me? No, that's a good word. Uh, when your athletes get done with you, can are they healthy and can they keep going? That's good. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's a good metric right there you just mentioned, I think. Yeah. And not uh, and a good challenge in uh, in sport. You know, where we're always pushing the limits and competing hard. So excellent KPI, I think. Yeah, and I think I think some of the biggest challenges today too are getting athletes just to to move better in general, right? You know, a lot of kids today have have the video games and their cell phones and and the recent pandemic didn't help out too much with that staying inside and yeah, yeah. doing classes from, from zoom, like we are right now, you know, and I, I've seen a lot of your content in the past, you know, you've been trying to get athletes out, out of the weight room and hiking, you know, out in the mountains and everything up in Vancouver, you know, for, for lack of a better term, away from civilization, you know, how, how did you incorporate that into some of your younger athletes training and, and what was the feedback you got from them? Oh, wow. You know, um, uh, I'll answer it because, uh, you know, just to remind people to be open, you know, not, not to jump around at, at anything, but just to be, stay open, stay curious. And because I came out to Vancouver, which is on Canada's West Coast, above Seattle, above California, and I was from what we call the East, um, but Ontario, you know, more more like central to Chicago and place like that. When I grew up, uh, like like many coaches did as athletes, I played every structured North American team sport and most of the individual scheduled sports. Then I came out to Vancouver and I'm seeing like uh, guys on bikes popping out of the forest, you know, (laughs) and at first I'm like, this is crazy. What's going on? Like I wasn't, it wasn't uh, appealing to me. Um, one of the best things I did, I'll be honest, is because it it rains. Uh, it rains like crazy in Vancouver. We were surrounded by three mountains and rainforest. People move here, complain about the rain. And we live in a rainforest. So, uh, <laughs> um, so wherever you are, you got to find a way to get into it and enjoy it. And um, I, I, I got a dog. I lived in an apartment, a condo, so I had I, I had to, which the right word is get to. I got to take the dog out twice a day in the pouring rain, in the snow, anything, down to the beach, a little more into the forest. And then I, I did it for the dog, but I, I noticed how happy the dogs were. And I started to realize, well, so am I. 
and it feels pretty good. So if it feels good, it only feels something feels good really if it's good for my mental well-being. Or we know motion creates positive emotion, and na- nature feeds the same. So o- over a, lo- uh, a sort of a life chapter here, I, I started to mountain bike and hike and ski and snowshoe and go through the fun. I stopped. I stopped all the sports I knew how to do pretty well and started to enjoy skill acquisition of of new new uh, opportunities. The Suffice to say, um, there was somewhere along the way, I also had a um, a health wrinkle that I had to iron out. And I used going into nature and the forest a lot for that. It It's a place, how, however you want to take it, there's so much uh, scientific evidence, just like we have in the strength and conditioning and exercise physiology area. There's a, there's a commensurate level of research for nature and mountains and forests how that is evidence to affect the healthfulness, the robustness of our cellular landscape. So uh, number one, I, I noticed uh, right into the practicality of your question, um, I noticed a, a lot of my athletes, um, great people working hard. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, my go-to is, you know, we're in the weight room or on the track or the field and we're going to do anaerobic sprints and I've got garbage cans at each at each end for them to throw up in. Like we're going for it and we're building grit and we're working hard. Um, so this just isn't like go peace out in the in the forest. <laughs> um, number one, I saw it for my young athletes. It's an it's a very undulated terrain. You hike, you hike hard up a mountain um, and then you run down and you run the trails. You're not place, you're not planting your foot the same once. That variability is naturally excellent for our muscle, our joints, our brain, our proprioceptive system. Um, but number two, I know I know they're under stress, they're under mental duress, uh, like a lot of humans are, but athletes in particular. And um, this is a place we can go. This this is our place to uh, work and exercise, but get grounded. Truly get our feet in the soil. And if that sounds hopey to you. Look up the science on that. And be, sur- be surrounded by an environment that's all positive and very living. If there's 200-foot trees and a big canopy, they've been there for 500 years, and there's growth on the ground, it's just a very alive environment. It's thriving. It's trying to thrive, right? Um, so that, that's the environment we're in. We're, we're all very affected by our environment. And we can go through the biochemistry and physiological and cellular changes that happen when you're in that environment, just even mentally, emotionally, our attitude, everything. We're surround, we're affected by the people around us, the home we live in, the culture of our team and classmates and friends and the physical space. So I see it as the optimal physical space um, from that standpoint and teaching them, you know, to be a leader of one. We're gonna be on this team, we're gonna be the consummate teammate. But for me, um, well, I'm giving to the team and I'm giving to the career and I'm giving to my family, my relationship, my, my parents, my kids, whatever. All, ultimately, I, how can I be at my best? I need to be a leader of one. And we're going to work hard and output and work hard and output. Uh, but when do we receive? How do we fill up on good energy? How do we fill up on good attitude? How do we uh, be kind to ourselves? Get this, exercise and training 
If I go and do like a 90 minute hardcore lift, that's benefiting as we know my muscle, my movement. If I do it a certain style, my brain, I don't believe my cells, like my cellular landscape, the foundation of the body. I don't believe my cells can differentiate from that exercise stress. Mm -hmm. as, as compared to if the three of us were on here yelling at each other. Our cells just know stress. Our body, our muscle, our brain, it adapts and it improves in its performance, but our cells just receive stress. So um, taking players out into that environment, it's a place they can go. We want to own the process, right? Have our healthy inputs at our fingertips, be under control, own our own health care. And it's a place we can go just to physically restore our body, improve the pace and completeness of our restoration so we can come in and train better the next day. Um, but emotionally, mentally, that side of it as well, spiritually, if you wish, uh, to go in there. And though we can get good positive inputs for all those things. And if they, if they live in an area, and Austin's a, an amazing area, uh, with some of that, you know, where do we go? You got to know each person has to know, where do I go? Where can I go when I need those type of things? Where do I go? Who do I do it with? Uh, do I go solo, which gets a lot of benefit? And uh, other people may respond well to something else. Someone might be writing. Someone might be piano. You know, there's other, there's other factors. It's really our right brain. At, at a university, at a college, most of the information in classrooms is left brain and analytical, scientific. It's all valuable, but we don't get our right brain development. Your athletes sure do from their sports and training and movement, most people don't. And the, the educational curriculum is left brain. So knowing more ways to like get our right brain uh, firing and feed our health and have them at our fingertips own the process, um, the, the athlete has to be able to quarterback uh, that side of it and know, know when to go. Yeah. It's interesting what you mentioned about like, Stressing ourselves, you know, if us three were to, you know, sit here and yell at each other, our body would be able to tell the difference. And I feel like, you know, taking them outside or, you know, into into a different environment, getting away from the screens. I mean, we kind of touched on it in social media. Social media builds up these expectations of how we're supposed to live and yeah, yeah. we're supposed to be judged and all that. And I mean, that that to me is stressful right there. You know, I, I look at these things on on uh, Instagram. I deleted most of my social media stuff stuff but uh i mean it, it's just like you don't get that out there you know you, you don't get that when you go out and either hike hunt uh like you mentioned snowshoe bike anything like that so i i personally i loved it you know you, you can get people out there and if you want to learn how to move um and work on like some of your tactile sensories go go climb a mountain and have unsure footing and and try to, try to work through terrain that'll that'll teach you how to move real quick so no i i i love the idea of it yeah absolutely thank you for that i'll, I'll sum up two things and i'll pass it right back to you from a training standpoint here one of the things that we love to do most is you know hike up to the top of the mountain and i'm talking a mountain you know you can get up there you know within a couple hours you're pushing it hard you're through it's thick it's steep man it's steep the uh, the players the the athletes look shocked they're out they're out of breath about two minutes in <laughs> and uh, it, it sneaks up on you but we get to the top whatever dogs are with us we play tug of war to get them riled up 
it's like the pregame warm up, and then it's three, two, one, go, and we all race down. And you want to get good plyometric deceleration training. Wow, you know, wow. So, so athletic. So you can do really athletic things in there as well. Number one, from a training standpoint, from a restoration standpoint, I, th I really think in all sports, that's a huge edge. Can we out-restore our opponent? Can we out-restore our other team? Can we out-restore our teammates who, like, we're coming, we want to come in and improve and get more minutes for ourselves. And I, I was never a restoration guy. I'm a do-everything, pull-out guy. And, uh, you know, and go hard. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of us are hardwired that way. So someone asked, someone literally, and I'm going to share this because it affected me so much. Somebody said, like, look, you, everything you do, you do full out, you know, and let's keep it within a sport. Like, you're, you're staying out on practice extra. You know, you're, you're doing repeat sprints and everyone's collapsed and you're, like, crawling through another one. You know, you're willing to go hard. And, you know, our, our, our athletes are. Like, we, we do everything. Full, we, we go full out. We have that ability and we need to do it. She said, you do those things to the extreme. Have you ever considered, why don't you just restore to the extreme? <laughs> because restoration, you know, it's kind of soft and it's like away from all that other part. And then it's like, oh, now you're speaking my language. I think <laughs> you, I, I bit the hook. It's like, hmm. So like, if we're going to get restore, why don't we get into it? Like we do everything else. Yeah. And like, do it complete, do it meticulous, do it really well, do it full, do it full out in that restoration wise, like, and really, so that's, so I've gone complete on there with everything else. And it's a huge benefit, just, you know, dabbling in it is a little bit helpful, but while you get into it and go for it, help restore everybody. And that spoke, spoke my competitor and my athlete and coach language. And kind of opened me up to like, yeah, I'm going to go excel. I'm going to excel at restoration, right? And it's just the getting the right mindset around that can kind of welcome us to do better at certain things that are advantageous to us. Yeah, and I, I like what you said, Coach. I mean, I totally believe to your point. You people, if you really want to restore and, you know, what do you call it, regeneration or restore, restoration. Yes, Fully, you got to train really hard to your point. You mean, you know, that's the first thing you mentioned. But I think today there's been a little bit, some people have just gotten so caught up in the restoration, but they're not training hard, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think to your point, I think that was that was spot on. Like the same mentality you have to train, and whether it's sprints or in the weight room or whatever, you're all out fully committed, then you need to be that way too with your restoration and regeneration as well. So good stuff, yeah. Yeah, right, right on. Well, yeah, and, and fair point, always have better encouragement. There's people that might be restoring 24-7, so it, right. <laughs> they had enough of that. Uh, and a lot of people, are, you know, being on social media isn't restoring, even though I can enjoy that. Watching Netflix isn't restoring. You know, that's, 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 that's that. You're kind of distracted and you're chilled. You're not, you're not training, but you're not restoring. So yeah. like, to get into a restoration program. I've got two. I know we're on uh, we're on audio here. You guys can see I got two bands I wear. One's opportunity is now, and that just means the time's now. So right now, how can I learn and grow? How can I improve? How can I help others get better? And it's that that awareness of now as a coach and athlete. Um, 
my philosophy with that is, and it's kind of looking at training and going hard and restoration, but just improving, you know, the opportunities now. So one, uh, one, three goals I have is to each moment learn from the people I'm with. Uh, and number two, uh, how can I show up? And I want to show, try and show up in a way to the people in the moment that we're in. Mm-hmm. And when I leave, I leave the people and the moment better than when I showed up. You know, an athlete gets that under their belt. Like every time they show up, they might just be buying a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Could be coming into the gym for a team training session. But I want to leave all these people better from this moment than when I showed up to it. And, you know, the opposite is terrible. And to be a non-factor is just insignificant. Like be a difference. And then I, I always wear a, a better every day band still on my wrist. And that's just, you know, I'm aspiring. Sometimes I fail. Uh, some days I have setbacks, but I'm, it makes me cognizant so that my third thing I want to do in every environment is uh, besides affect you positively, I'd like to learn and grow and get a little bit better. But every day I try and just get, you know, better every day. It's the same mantra and words that you guys use 24 seven in there in different ways, but to, to really, to really own it. I'm a big believer in uh, symbolism, you know, so I start to associate actions and tangible things with the, the, the mindset and the actions I need to have to make those come true. So um, using the moment now and focusing on us uh, getting better, kind of a me to we, I think those are two two powerful things that athletes, young athletes can carry and coaches in their career um, with leading them. No, I love it, Coach. I think I totally agree. You definitely have a very uh, uplifting, energetic, and inspirational kind of even just mentality. And I do. I believe that that you know, there's two types of people in life. There's lifters and leaners. You know, leaners are people that just always kind of like kind of bringing things down. You're always having to carry them. But like, I, I love being, I love that thought, like what you're saying, that wherever you come into a situation, you want to lift it and make it better, improve it. Even if it's just a fraction, that's that's a great uh, life mantra and, and mentality and spirit to have. So you definitely uh, resonate with that too. So appreciate it, Coach. I, I do. Thank you. And I uh, appreciate your your two uh, two words and your mantra there. I'm going to I'm going to be quoting you on that. I love it. <laughs> Yeah. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll be coaching. I'll be self-taught coaching. I'll be, don't be a leaner. Gotta be a lifter. That's right. <laughs> Kicking myself in the butt. <laughs> you go ahead, Joe. We're probably uh, out of time for today, but Joe, if you want to wrap it up and we'll land, land the plane. So. Um. Yeah. So yeah, just a couple things. Um, one, what, what resources would you recommend to our listeners? And then two, where, where can we find you on social media? Uh, so the social media part, um, my, my address there is coach Peter twist on Instagram. And then they, they can look up Peter twist on Facebook. If, if they're, you know, on, on that archaic platform, which I am. And, uh, so both those are fine. And, you know, from a resource, because it, there's a collaboration of authors, um, I'm going to turn people's attention because it's just so present for us to uh, twistuniversity.com. And what is being built on there is kind of a, a, an online community of lifters, not leaners, 
So to associate more with folks that want to go on that path and affect each other that way, and they really want to get after, you know, aspirational leadership goals. But it's a it's a place with specialized certification courses to study digitally. There's uh, five learning pathways that help someone take their breadth of strength and conditioning and training knowledge and specialize, whether that's sport performance, functional brain training, holistic health, youth physical literacy, mental well-being, champion mindset on that side. You know, you can specialize with a few courses. So you start to develop that niche, raise your expertise. And for those that are out in private practice, then it allows you to become truly expert there because which clients are high value clients that will pay money. You know, if you need heart surgery, you go to a heart surgeon, not the family doctor. And so on the same analogy, anytime any of us need a solution or have a goal, we're going to try and go to a specialist in that specific area. So it's just, it's helps, it helps coaches develop, enhance their specialty niche that they can really be the point of their spear. And as a resource, one of the reasons I mentioned that is they're all brand new this year. They're going to get, continue to get built out. Of course, I'm an author of that, but there's also other collaborator, collaborators as a resource, like Dr. Jack Taunton, who's the founder of sports medicine in Canada. Uh, he's been to about 12 Olympic Games, and he wrote the uh, sports medicine curriculum at the University of British Columbia. So there's a number of other folks that are lifelong leaders in their area who are contributing. And uh, that's that's a great resource we, uh, they can learn from many specialists. Awesome. Thank you. Well, yeah, Coach, like you said, I think we're, we're running short in time. Um, Coach, thanks for coming on. I mean, all the way from, from the great north. Uh, uh, yeah, I know your time is valuable, and it's it was awesome to see your yeah, talk to you. Yeah, so great, yeah. I enjoyed speaking with both of you and uh, your, your audience probably are, all knows that with your, your national championships and your, uh, your, your runner runners up to that as well. You know, naturally it's evident. I, I said earlier to, uh, to the two coaches before that, before the podcast started that um, numbers don't lie and, you know, success is earned and, and um, so on. So that really gives evidence to the great work that you're doing there. That's a key key foundation to athletic success. So I tip my hat to that and uh, love being on here chatting and happy to share, but I uh, really appreciate listening to both of you and picking up things myself uh, as well as a lifelong learner. So thank you for what you're doing there and thank you for having me on. Coach Joe, Coach Peter Twist, it has been an honor and pleasure. That's, that's it for the team behind the team this month. And uh, again, follow Peter Twist if you haven't looked him up. Super sharp coach, been doing this a lot longer than all of us combined. So a lot to learn from. Coach, thanks again. And you take care in Canada. And that's it. We'll see you next month on the team behind the team. All right. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the team behind the team podcast. For future episodes, go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. We definitely want to keep having great guests on the show and great content. So if you have a moment, please go to iTunes, leave a rating and review, and let us know how we're doing. I'm Donnie Mabe, and thanks so much for tuning in.